On October 3rd of 1995, one of those watershed moments took place where almost everyone in the country seems to have their attention on one thing. And that thing was the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial, which had dragged on and on and on, and people had been watching, and every late-night you know, commentator, every uh, newspaper article seemed to be about this trial, this one trial that had captivated the nation. And it's one of those things a lot of people remember where they were when they heard the verdict. I don't. I was 17 years old in my defense. I had just a few weeks earlier started dating a very pretty girl. I was kind of preoccupied with that. And uh, I don't know exactly where I was. I do know that within an hour or so, I too had heard. And I remember that everyone, everywhere you went, was talking about it. It was the story. And at the same time, this thing called court TV was getting popular and the idea of everyone focusing on a trial and, and, and instead of uh, watching legal thrillers, having them play out in real life, in real time, on television was becoming popular. The next year, the Menendez brothers trial was almost as big of a deal. And then after that came something else, and, and it, it kind of blew out of proportion. And a movie came out about the same time. Now, it's not for everyone, and I'm not recommending it, but it was called The Cable Guy. And it was a Jim Carrey movie. And it kind of skewered this notion of everyone living vicariously, staring at screens, and thinking about these, these stories, these, these moments that are ultimately not that important to you and I in our lives with our families. And, and so throughout the movie, there's this more and more absurd trial involving these two twins who were child stars, and then one of them supposedly murdered the other, and, and they kept showing little glimpses of the trial and building suspense more and more and more, and they get to the very end and they show Everyone in the country is watching with bated breath in all sorts of different places, in bars and restaurants, at home, you know, standing and, and watching through the, the store window. And then just at the moment when the, the news reporter says, they've come out with a verdict, the verdict is in, and it's something in the plot happens that destroys the satellite feed, and the movie ends, and you never find out whether he was innocent or guilty. And of course, that was a bit of the point of the movie, that it didn't really matter that much whether one of these former child stars was innocent or guilty, but it was intentionally anticlimactic. It was kind of a, an odd, abrupt ending. And I think we almost see something like that in Acts as well, because we've had this, this trial building and building, at least for in our study, the last couple of months. And we get to this point where after all the hardships Paul has endured to get there, after all the injustice that's happened along the way that has been addressed and, and redressed and all the people that, that have weighed in and, and kicked him up the ladder, finally we get to the end. Paul is in Rome. Paul is there. And we think, what will happen? What will he say before Caesar? What will Caesar say about Paul? And we read, he lived there two whole years in his own, his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance, Romans. That's the end. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't even get to the trial itself. It's such a strange ending. And a lot of people have suggested possibilities as to why the book of Acts seems to end rather abruptly. It's possible that it goes no further because Luke wrote it down during those two years or as they were coming to a close. 
Uh, and he didn't know what happened next. Maybe. Some have suggested maybe he wrote long after Paul had already died, and he intended to write a third book. I mean, 28 chapters about as much as you can fit in one uh, papyrus before you have to move on to another one. So maybe he had a trilogy plan, right? The Gospel according to Luke, the Acts of the Apostles by Luke, and then the persecution of the church or something. And he never got around to it. We can't know. Many have suggested it's a perfect ending. And it ends exactly as Luke intended. I think that is the case. Uh, St. Chrysostom suggested this. The author conducts his narrative up to this point and leaves the hearer thirsty so that he fills up the lack by himself through reflection. And I think what we're seeing here is a reminder that this book of Acts is not the story of St. Paul. It's not a biography. In fact, St. Paul doesn't even come on the scene until chapter 9, and he doesn't become the main character until chapter 13, which is between a third and half of the way through the book. No, it's not his story. It's the story of how the Holy Spirit equipped and empowered the early church to bring the gospel from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in a sense, the story doesn't end because the story's not over. We're still writing chapters of the book of Acts today. Now, we're not seeing the miraculous things uh, at, at every turn like you do in the book of Acts, but we are still seeing a sovereign God and a Holy Spirit that is empowering the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and doing the same great deeds through it. In fact, there's a network of churches called the Acts 29 Network. And it wasn't named that way because they, they didn't know how many chapters were in the book of Acts, but because they said to themselves, this is the situation in which we find ourselves. We are God's people continuing to bring that gospel out, just as we were commanded in Acts 1.8. And so in a sense, if the gospel is kind of uh, one of the main characters, and the Holy Spirit, the, the true main character, in fact, many have suggested instead of Acts of the Apostle, we ought to call this Acts of the Holy Spirit, well, yeah, we're done. We've gotten all the way to Rome. The gospel has arrived, and when it arrives, it finds the gospel's already there. The church is already flourishing. There are Christians already ready to welcome Paul and to support him. And so it's a perfect ending place. But is Rome really the end of the earth? From the point of view of starting in Jerusalem, it seems like it. But in a sense, it's, it's really the center of the earth. And yet, from Rome, we go out in every direction. It's the crossroads of the world. It's the center of the heart of the empire. And from the, the center of Rome, the gospel will naturally be headed out along these Roman roads and highways to all the far-flung places on earth, all nations and peoples, in the way that Roman armies had been going out to conquer and subjugate and enslave people for centuries. Now the gospel goes out to free people and save them along those very same roads. In many ways, it's an incredibly hopeful ending. And if he hadn't stopped there and had kept going, we would start getting into uh, the the execution, the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, and of Peter, and of Paul himself, and it would seem a much less hopeful ending, I think. I mean, just listen to the last words again. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Seems like a kind of strange phrase, without hindrance, in the book of Acts. 
Because the book of Acts could be subtitled hindrance. I mean, every single thing that can go wrong goes wrong. Even just look at how hard it is to get Paul from point A in Jerusalem to point B in Rome. We're dealing with all sorts of difficulties. We've got people trying to murder him along the way. We've got, we've got storms at sea, shipwrecks. He, he can't even just come in out of the shipwreck after two weeks and dry out and warm up at the fire. No, a snake has to bite him, a venomous snake. It's difficulty after difficulty upon difficulty. And here you might say, well, all right, he gets a reprieve. Without hindrance, he can preach. Except for the whole hindrance of being under arrest, under house arrest, not able to go anywhere. Paul, when he wanted to preach, he went out. He didn't say, everybody come to me. He went out. He can't do that now. So what do they mean by without hindrance? Well, actually, I'd like you to jot this down if you write in your Bible. A little note that it's actually a single adverb here for without hindrance or no man forbidding him or whatever your translation says. It would be awkward, but maybe a little bit more woodenly accurate to say that he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, taught about the kingdom of God with all boldness, unhinderedly or unpreventedly. This is not describing so much the situation around him as it is the way that he's proclaiming and teaching unhinderedly. He's not going to do it in a way that will be hindered. He will not be stopped because he's the Apostle Paul and because this is the story of the absolutely relentless march forward of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. He is going to do this unhinderedly. And so he arrives, and you'd think, all right, he is going to take a time. You know, take, take a few weeks and finally recharge. He's going to restore his strength. Nope, three days later, he takes a long weekend, right? We get Columbus Day or President's Day off, rather. Uh, he's going to take a, a little long weekend here. Three days later, he's ready to go. He says, I'm in a new city. I've been wanting to come to this city. What does Paul always do when he arrives at a new city? Almost without exception, go first to the synagogue. He can't. He's under arrest, so... Bring the synagogue to me. That will be the way I will figure it out. You see, Paul is clearly 100% a creature of habit, which I like because I too am a creature of habit. But unlike me, Paul knows when it's time to improvise and he doesn't hesitate. If, if things are working, it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if it's not doing the job anymore, he says, we'll try something else. Change it up. Because the only thing that's truly important is getting the gospel to people and getting, or getting the people to the gospel, whichever way. I think about the, the ingenuity involved in the people who were carrying their friend to go see Jesus when he was preaching in Peter's house and the crowd was too big and there was no way to get in, especially not holding a stretcher with a, a guy on it. And somebody said, I've got a plan. And they decided, I don't know what they did to get up, maybe jump from rooftop to rooftop and throw the guy. Who knows? It was crazy, whatever it was. They start breaking apart his roof, lowering him in. Why? Because there is an urgency to get someone to Jesus because Jesus is life. Paul clearly feels that as well. And you and I ought to as well. This notion that, that we've got the gospel, we've got the treasure. We've got the, the words of life. And whatever little hindrance might be in the way between us bringing that to the lost, it's not going to stop us. We will do it unhinderedly. 
And yet when we see an open door to ministry, I think our first tendency can often be to just focus on the hindrances. To focus on them and catalog them and and lament them. I'm not going to be able to answer all that guy's questions. He's really smart. No, maybe this is not a good idea. I'm not the most eloquent person here, you know? I mean, these are people that have heard me swear and gossip and seen me at my worst and maybe knew me before I was a believer and uh, I don't know. You know, people don't care today how to be saved, right? That's, uh, that seems like only culty weirdos and fanatics talk that way. No, don't start listing the hindrances. If we're going to proclaim Jesus unhinderedly, we're looking for the way forward. It's interesting to me how similar many of the same objections and, and obstacles people will talk about today, why they are unable to bring the gospel to the people who need to hear the gospel, are the same things that Moses said millennia ago. Not very eloquent. I might not have the answers to all their questions. Specifically, what if they ask me what this God's name is? I don't even know your name. I don't know enough. You know, I'm not, I'm not your guy. And God rebukes him. Who made man's mouth? I did. Go, open, I got you. That's all. In the opening of the message, Paul asks us to pray, or rather asks those who are alive, uh, asks his, his uh, followers to pray for him that in the opening of his mouth, he would boldly and clearly proclaim the gospel. So his job is, yeah. if you can do that, you can proclaim the gospel. And if you choose to do it unhinderedly, there is very little that can hold you back. Now, Paul had been dreaming about going to Rome for years. And this is how I know that he truly must have had a moment of disappointment at how he arrived. Because when you read in Romans 15, he says, I've longed for many years to come to you. He describes this dream scenario in which when I arrive, my main goal is to spend some time with you. But then you and me, we kind of team up and on to Spain. And we are going to bring the gospel and push it further yet west. Keep on going. Keep on moving. In his mind... Undoubtedly, his time in Rome, as he dreamt about it, would be like his time in Ephesus. Spending time in the synagogue until that well kind of dried up. Then he rented a hall, a lecture hall, and he taught his students day after day for years. Everything went really well. Time in Corinth went very well, compared to this anyway, not, not without its troubles, but it went fairly well. Everywhere he goes, he's visiting the synagogue, he's able to go in and talk to those people who are amongst his brothers and sisters of Israel. Maybe he was thinking of doing what he did in Athens where he toured the city and he kind of took all the sights in and he kind of boiled down everything that he saw so that he would be able to connect with the people. None of that is possible. It didn't turn out that way. And so he says, all right, I'm here. This is the situation. What can I do? I don't know about you, but I'm very bad at this. When I get in my mind how something is supposed to be, and then it isn't that way, my wife will say, it's okay, it's still this good, and I'll say, no! It's got to be exactly how I envisioned it. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be... We can't get caught up in that trap. In my mind, I was able to talk to this person, and they were able to listen, and there was no distractions, and the conversation didn't go off track in any direction. And when I told them that I was praying for them because I knew that they were hurting because they had just lost it, they, they didn't laugh. 
Or they didn't say, what difference does that make? Or hollow legal thanks. No, no, they said, oh yeah, tell me more about, about who this Jesus is. Listen, when you begin to open your mouth to boldly and clearly proclaim the gospel, you can't have any expectations about where this is going. We walk by faith, not by sight. Just trust that God is going to guide you. Now for Paul, this is the most important thing. Not that he's able to move freely around the city, but that he is able to bring the gospel and use the gospel not only to proclaim to the Jews who don't know Jesus yet, but to proclaim to the Christians who need to hear it in order to strengthen them. No obstacle will hinder him because he is preaching unhinderedly. It's crazy to me today how little will stop us from serving God. What, what little it takes to put a stop to something, even something that's gained a lot of steam. What, what little it takes to keep us from attending church together. Any, any little excuse seems like, okay, well, I guess maybe next week. Eh, or the one after. I don't know. Well, in Paul's mind, he knows that, that he has built up something that he wants to see. I, I go to the synagogue. That's how I do it. That's how I've always done it. But what if I say, you guys come to me? Will they come? Maybe not. If they don't come, I'm going to feel stupid. It's going to seem silly. It's going to seem like the gospel is kind of powerless. He doesn't get all worked up in all this stuff. He says, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the worst thing they could say? No. No, thank you. And then not come. But they didn't do that. He invited. They were curious. They all came. And then after he spent some time telling them about the gospel in general and making a case for himself, he says, well, we should get together again and spend an entire day with me explaining to you who Jesus is and why that matters. And they all say, okay, and even more people show up. I think it's a great reality check when the enemy wants to get in with little hindering stuff and, and throw all these obstacles in front of you and say, maybe now's not the time to open your mouth boldly and proclaim the gospel unhinderedly to say, what is the worst thing that could happen? Hmm. What is the worst thing my neighbor could say to me if I said, hey, would you like to come to church with me on Sunday? Probably no. Uh-oh. Now what? Oh, nothing. It's fine. So they said, no. Okay, maybe I'll ask again in a, in a few weeks. Maybe I'll wait and, and feel out the situation. Maybe I'll try and have a conversation with them about Jesus. I don't know. The worst thing they could say is no. And when he asked, they said yes. And they came together. And, and for a guy who has endured so much for the gospel, it's laughable to think that he would have given even a moment's thought to whether or not he should ask the Jews to come and meet with him because they might say no. They might turn him down. His final chapters of Acts, they ramp up to the, revival, the arrival in Rome and they're chock full of suffering. Two years in prison, death plots, beatings, you know, all, all the stuff that we already talked about, the, the fiery serpent, the shipwreck. All of this stuff is, is, is now behind him and Paul sees nothing to hinder him from going forward. Not the chains that lock him up, not the Roman guard that keeps him where he is. So Paul begins by clearing the air. I've committed no offense against Israel or the law. The Romans wanted to kick me loose, but I appealed to Caesar. And this all has something to do with the resurrection of the dead, starting with the resurrection of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, the synagogue leaders in Rome had not heard of Paul. They hadn't received any letters about him. 
Apparently, the Sanhedrin was finally satisfied that Paul was far enough away not to be a danger to them. Or maybe they were just confident that Rome would do the Rome thing and put him to death right away. Eventually, they will, but not yet. The Jewish leaders, however, though they haven't heard of Paul, have heard all sorts of rumors about the way, about the gospel, about the followers of Christ. And now, in place of rumors, Paul preaches the gospel in its fullness to them. And when he brings them together from morning to evening, undoubtedly spending time preaching and teaching and then other time question and answer and then discussion. As he goes through this, I wish we had some record of what was said that day, but I think we can probably know. Just turn the page. The book of Romans is right here. This is the gospel of Paul to the Romans. He wrote it about three years earlier. And I, I imagine that what he began with them was similar, showing how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how all the Jews are condemned by the law, all the Gentiles are condemned apart from the law. Therefore, all of us together uh, file under the category of on our way to a separation from God for eternity. And then he brings in the good news. But there is a righteousness apart from the law that the law and the prophets have attested to, by which we can be saved. And bringing the gospel to these people, showing them how, yeah, you've been, you've been caught in all this formality and all these rituals and memorizing all these things. All of it was pointing forward to this one man, Jesus, and what he would do. As always, when Paul brings up the inclusion of Gentiles in the promise, some of the Jews take exception and some don't, and there is kind of a rift but all the same, Paul continues for two years to preach unhinderedly. When I think about all of the possible barriers and obstacles that could hinder us, it can sometimes seem a little overwhelming. I, I think about even the difference between now and 20 years ago. How much more cultural baggage there is everywhere. How much more potential pitfall there is in trying to say to someone, you need Jesus. I think we're on the verge of that becoming a very, very unpopular, maybe even an a offensive thing to say in any kind of mixed company. And yet we're still called to carry it out. We have the barriers, of course, of, of all the hypocrites and all the churches uh, everywhere, including you, know, you and me. But the real hypocrites who aren't truly what they say to be, that, that they are, the, the, the hypocrites who... who uh, very publicly made a face of being righteous and then fell from grace. Uh, and now everyone in the world looks and says, see, I knew there was nothing to it. We have to deal with that and contend with the, the fallout from that. We have to deal with the fact that we've let Christianity get hijacked and altered so that salvation is no longer at the core of it. For, for ages, you ask anyone in America, what, is, what do they teach in that church down the street? I don't know, I don't go there. Well, what, what would you think that they teach? Oh, you know, you've got to get saved. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to repent. You've got to turn or burn. They'd say something. Something that had, at its core, basically the gospel. Anymore, what does the church teach? People probably would say, I don't know. Be kind. Help your neighbor. I know the good stuff. Be, be, be a good person. We've let Christianity lose the core gospel. And in the churches have downplayed evangelism. Our primary role as the church is to make disciples. Now, that's not limited to just evangelism, but without evangelism, 
we can't make any new disciples. And, and you know, there, there's often this thought of that the church will do it, the church at large. There's a system there, there's programs or professionals, especially in larger churches where there are kind of masses of people. But even in the largest, slickest churches of today, in this age of, of social media and instant connection and everything, between two-thirds and three-quarters of people who attend a church for the first time do it because someone invited them, at least did that much. They didn't, they didn't maybe come and proclaim the gospel, but they extended a hand and said, let's go together to the house of the Lord where the gospel is proclaimed. Now, I think that we need to work on this at Judson, just like everyone in America needs to work on this. This spring, we're going to have some evangelism training, and we're going to talk about how we can proclaim our faith to other people, because I don't think it's fair to keep on saying, we ought to do this, we ought to do this, and not say, here's a little help in how to do it. But at the, the core is the, the, the idea, the notion that the church made up of the people of God, is going out and making disciples. On Sunday mornings, we're coming in. The rest of the week, we're going out. And when we're going out, we need to be making disciples. Another barrier is, is what has been called a conspiracy of moral indifference. I think that's a great term. A conspiracy of moral indifference, the notion that there's this deal, this contract that everyone has that says, if you never tell me anything I do is wrong, I'll never tell you anything that you do is wrong. Then we'll all be comfortable, and nobody gets freaked out, nobody gets offended, and as long as nobody gets offended, why, that's the high sacrament of our day in the secular world. Andrew Wilson wrote this little vignette, parable. He said, let's say I have a neighbor and I want to preach Christ to him using my deeds. This is the notion of preach Christ when necessary, use words. And then we decide quickly, oh, words are not necessary because words are awkward. Well, he says, I greet my neighbor over the garden fence. I invite him and his wife around for dinner, where I show them the best hospitality of which I am capable. I explain that I am a Christian, but make no attempt to shove the gospel down his throat. Noticing that his garden could use a bit of work, I offer him my lawnmower which he accepts, and eventually, through repeated usage, breaks. I do not complain or ask him to replace it. I replace it myself and continue to allow him to use it whenever he sees fit. I help whenever I can. In all things, I seek to display unconditional kindness toward him and to love him as I love myself. Eventually, he dies. Now, what have my actions preached to him? They have preached that Christians are people who do good things for their neighbor. They have preached that niceness and kindness and moral upright behavior are what make you a Christian. In short, they have preached justification by works. Your works have indeed preached something, but it isn't the gospel. The scriptures tell us to proclaim the gospel, the most common image being the opening of the mouth, because that's where the words come out of your head. The good deeds, the acts of love and mercy, adorn the gospel. If there's no gospel to adorn, it's just a pile of stuff. And it makes it seem like piling up stuff, piling up good deeds, is how you become right with God. And so we have got to all bow out of, break out of the conspiracy of moral indifference. 
Which means, by the way, that if I'm going to point out that you are a sinner and you just need a Savior, I'd better be ready when I do something that needs to be pointed out as well to hear that. Another barrier Tom Rayner sums up when he says, many churches have an excuse mentality. So pastors blame it on the laity. The laity blame it on the pastor. And both blame it on the culture, the denomination, or some other external scapegoat. And yet Paul was looking for a way, any way forward. Not a reason not to proceed. It's easy to say, well, here are all the hindrances. Here are all the reasons that we have to just kind of shut the doors, huddle inside the four walls of the church and say, oh, it's all going down out there. Oh, how sad. And yet Paul said, all right, well, I can't go to them. All right, say tomorrow, bring all the synagogue leaders here. We'll give that a try. If that didn't work, he'd have tried something else. And when that stopped working, he moved on to other ways. I mean, look at all the different ways that Paul's reaching out. He's writing letters from prison. Some of the most meaningful letters to me in the New Testament, they're from Paul while he's imprisoned. Uh, re- read Philemon. And, and just, just the, the way that God's at work here. You'd think that Paul would not be able to have this far-reaching and deep effect on different people from all walks of life from a cell. Yeah, sure, it's his own rented house, but that just means he gets to pay for it, but he doesn't get to leave it. Read, read the book of Philemon. You've, you've got this, this guy, uh, Onesimus, and, and he runs away and steals some money. He's a bond servant, and he says, I'm done trying to pay off my debt by, by indentured servitude. I'm just going to grab what I can, take the money, and run. In Rome, he seeks out Paul and finds him. He becomes a believer. He's saved. He's convicted. He repents. And Paul, through a letter, is able to send him back and have a ministry that reaches way beyond Rome, back home, as he sends Onesimus back and says, I want you to accept him not as your slave, but as a brother. He's looking for ways to get it done, not for reasons that he can't. And churches have gone out to the ends of the earth in just about every direction. Now, we haven't gotten into every country and every people group and every language, but we're, we're moving, and churches have gotten just about everywhere we can. And as we go out, it's almost, in a sense, like each little church is a little Rome, meaning that it's a place of convergence where we all come together, and from there, we all go back out in all different directions. And as Jesus said in Matthew 28, while going, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you knew the OJ verdict before it was announced, you would have told everybody. We know something that people need to know. We know something that people are are lost without. We have the good news of great joy, which is for all peoples. And we have to have an attitude that says, I am going to proclaim it unhinderedly. Because without someone proclaiming, no one can hear. And if they don't hear, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they won't be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's uh, faithfulness. A man who, uh, in his last imprisonment, in his final days, was able to look back at his life and say he had fought the good fight, he had run the race. Lord, we thank you that he keeps on running the race, even when circumstances bring him to a standstill. That even when there was much that would hinder him, 
He set about serving you and proclaiming the gospel unhinderedly. And Lord, we pray that would be how we at Judson Baptist Church approach the ministry as well. That we would do these things unhinderedly. Bringing the good news of Jesus Christ adorned in deeds of love and mercy. Lord, that we would be a place of uh, gathering together to worship. A place that says, even in the culture... When, when there is nothing but contempt and derision for the notion that Jesus is Lord, this will be a place and we will be a people where we hold that up as the highest truth and we proclaim it as light out into the darkness. That we would be the salt going out into a city that is very much in need of some salting. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.